dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pastor Mike, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a black Christian collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BurnsClan. Please follow at your own risk. And joining me today, we have another group episode for you. Sitting on my right is the founder of The Witness, very extensive bio, the man, the myth, the legend, the two-time best-selling author, the book award winner, he writes at jamartisby.substack.com. Mr. Blue Check verified himself. Dr. Jamar Tisby, what's going on, brother? What's going on with you? Man, I'm good, bro. <laughs> see, like, see? Yeah, like, I'm good. Got, got nothing. Got nothing. It's but a harder you gotta, question. You got to answer the question first, and then you can <laughs> ask the question. It's like basic polite. I answered the question with I the question. I thought you were from That's the all. South, bro. That's like Southern good. hospitality and uh-huh. like politeness. Oh, well, okay, anyway, so um, on my other side, we have the subject of today's episode, what, what? the vice president of The Witness, Ali Henney, and the author of the book, which we are spending some time to talk about. I'm so excited to talk about this book. The book title is I Won't, I Won't Shut, Shut Up. Up. And the subtitle is? Finding Your Voice When the World Tries to Silence You. Ali, what's going on? How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. You wrote a whole book. I did. A whole, a whole book. book. A whole book. We knew this day was coming. Now We knew it, we had it in you. I want to say I want to say this, and I, I want to get this out of the way, because I don't want to say this to the end. Normally, people are like, oh, you know, I'll talk about your book at the end. But I just want to say this. I thoroughly enjoyed reading this book. And I enjoyed reading this book mainly because of its pace how I felt that your presentation of your own story, you were extremely vulnerable. Oh my goodness. (laughs) You know, like y'all have to pick up the book. Okay. You were extremely vulnerable, extremely transparent, but I felt like the book sounded like you. Mm. It read like you. It was an authentic presentation of your own story and your own narrative. And the pace was so good. It was just so well-written. It was just an easy read, you know? And so I just want to say, incredible job writing this book. Birthing a book into the world is difficult. It's hard work. And you've done that. And so we want to give you your flowers on the front end, not on the back end. We want to give you your flowers on the front end. Congratulations. Congratulations. Congratulations, sis. Amazing job. Well, thank you. I mean, that's definitely high praise. You know, whenever you write your Whenever you write something and then like you read it and you and you read it and you read it multiple times, like it starts to be like, is, is this really good? Like, is this, does this, are people going to understand this? That's, that's, that's great. Thank you. I, I received that praise. Thank you so much. And I love the fact that you just incorporated, and I just want people to get a glimpse of the book before they read it. I love that you incorporated not just your personal experiences, not just social commentary, not just Christian theology, but also... The, the souls of black folk. Like it was very obvious. Like you were constantly referencing this is what my grandmother used to say. This is what people like my Angelou used to say. This is what like you were constantly referencing this great cloud of witnesses that we have as black people. So I want to talk about audience before we get into some of the details of the book. As you think about audience and as you think about who you are writing this book for. Because it had a different title at the beginning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Talk about who you're writing this book for, because I think that's crucial in in how people approach it and how they understand what you're trying to do. That is a great question. So I am writing, I won't shut up, or I wrote, I guess, because it's done. Uh, it's hard to believe. Uh, but I wrote this to and for Black women specifically. And so then from that, Black men, then outside, then, then you get to, um, through the, the different circles 
of identities and intersections of identities. And really what it comes down to is that this book is for anyone who has ever felt silenced or marginalized because of their identity, because of how they have moved through the world and the world has said, no, you need to, you need to sit down and shut up. When you think about this story as it intersects with your own racial identity development and this book, how it is the embodiment of your own story, you are very personal early in the book about growing up, where you grew up, how you grew up, and the family dynamics that play into who you became and who you are becoming still. Because I think I love the fact that you're not just saying, oh, I have become this, but I am becoming this. And as I'm becoming this, I'm not going to be silent in the midst of it. How important was it for you to share family dynamics, share parts of your family that maybe you're like, I don't know if I, you know, like, I don't know if I want to share this. I don't know if people are ready for this, but you shared things and it shaped how you saw yourself and how you saw the world as a result. Yeah, I think it was important for me to share those things because, I mean, it's my story, right? It's who it's who I am. And there are things that about my work, about the things that I say, that I don't think you can fully understand where it's coming from yes. if you don't know that I grew up in a small, predominantly white rural town in rural Missouri, you know, one of a handful of black people in the city, but then also in, in the small town, but then also grew up with a strong sense of black identity in in my family. And then also growing up at, in a large, loud, extended family. I think yes. that that's that that's an important thing. And then one of the things that I talk about is my grandmother's um, illness. My grandmother, she was she helped raise me. Um, she was the solid rock of my whole entire family. And then she got sick with lung cancer. She was a heavy smoker for many years got lung cancer, had a stroke, um, had lung cancer, her health started to fail. And so then within that, I started to experience some things. It was nothing that was that was wild, but just the the we- the wearing and weathering that black families experience yes. whenever there is hurt, whenever someone's sick, whenever the the matriarch or the patriarch of the family is is going through something, I experience some of the effects and stuff of that. And so I think that you that in order to understand my story, it's important to understand those things, and and that's sort of where where my work comes from. And and obviously the the big idea here is. Growing up in a rural town mm-hmm. and growing up in rural Missouri. In a like predominantly this is white rural town. Significant. Yes. And can you talk a little bit about that experience? I'm not actually sure if we've explicitly talked about that on the podcast ever in terms of that dynamic by itself. Not, mm-hmm. and we've referenced yeah. your, your personal mm-hmm. story before, but that dynamic in and of itself it shapes how one comes into their own and becomes mm-hmm. in their embodied full black self. Yeah. So what do people need to understand about rural reality that's a lot different than what most of us have experienced? 
So there's a chapter in the book that I titled White Noise, and it's kind of a a double entendre a little bit. So it's white noise in terms of like you think about just the noise that you hear that's kind of a static, a sushing sound, whatever. Um, That's just that that's just part of our our lives in various ways. It shows up in our lives in various ways. But then there's also white noise as in the noise that white people make and and the noise of whiteness. And whenever you are a black person, growing up in a small predominantly white town where you don't have very many racial mirrors there is a subtle I I describe it as like the subtle sush of racism where it's in everything it's it's everywhere there's you're you're being microaggressed you're being you just don't have representation there's the vestiges of um there's there's the vestiges of slavery there's the vestiges of segregation there are all these things that we're that we're contending with and it normalizes racism to where for me, in my experience, I understood what racism was from a very young age. I understood what that what that was. I knew what it meant to be black. But then it normalized it in such a way that I didn't think I had the power to push back against racism. Mm-hmm. So I just accepted it as white people are racist. Mm-hmm. They're going to do racist things. And so then it's my job to try to not invite their racism mm. by doing something that then would would open the door um, for them to do something racist. Um, I don't use this example in the book, but this is just a for example, like, you know, I'm not going to eat like you know, chicken and watermelon right. and like, like, Oh, there's watermelon. The thing like, I'm not going to do this because if I, if I'm, if I'm eating watermelon, somebody's going to make a racist Somebody joke. Gonna somebody's going to see it and they're going to, and they're going to make a racist joke. So it's not inviting their racism and it's also not inciting their racism. So it's not doing things that are going to, to upset them that then they're going to use a racial slur because I, because I did something that they, that they didn't like. And um, yeah. And so you, you grow up with that feeling and with that constant awareness of anything that I do, anything that I say, it could turn into some racism. And you and it's just it's so I just can't emphasize I, I can't overemphasize how normal racism is. And it's not until I got out of that context and really started to to learn and to think and stuff for myself that it was like, wait a minute, I actually don't, I can actually like tell white people that they don't, that they don't get to talk to me that way. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, Jay. I've been, I've been, I'm cooking. You, yeah, you, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm still here. Um, go, ahead. <laughs> go ahead. I'm sorry. Man. I just got so many questions. I'm like, ah, let me cook. Let me cook. Can you talk about the role that, that faith played in this stage of life? Is this, is this something that was deeply embedded in your family as your grandmother uh, teaching you these things about it? Are you going to white churches or is this not really in the picture in those early days growing up in a white rural community? So we were, I mean, church was segregated where I came from. So uh, there was one black church in my small town. I think that there are like maybe three or four now, but we went to a black church. Now there were a few black people who attended. There was a Methodist church in town that was predominantly white. There was a few of them that attended, that attended um, the Methodist church. And then sometimes, you know, different ones would maybe attend. uh, I think like somebody attended the Lutheran church or whatever, but for the most part, we all stuck together in the little rural, black Baptist church. Mm. And so, and there, and that church, you know, um, I don't get into it a whole lot in, in the book, but there were some, but that book that, but that church had a little bit of a fraught 
throughout history. So my family was in and out of that. So yeah, so faith was was part of my journey and part of my story. But growing up in my predominantly white or my yeah my small predominantly white town, I attended black churches. And then because um, my family at one point we started going to church in the neighboring town, one of the black churches in the neighboring town. And so um, that was just that the, uh, the white church didn't enter my story until I went off to college. Okay. You, you've done so much work, you know, as we, as we even intersecting with faith and image of God and being fearfully and wonderfully made, you know, there's this searing chapter where you talk about beauty standards hmm. and specifically, if I'm not mistaken, it's called unpretty. Mm-hmm. And it's really about how you just wanted someone to dance with you. Yeah. And you just wanted to be able to feel that. And when you talk about not having mirrors, I love the fact that you, ever since I've, I've gotten to know you and we've been friends, you've really pointed out in small and large ways how beauty standards shape black women and how they're so much different for black women and how there's this internal wrestle and dialogue about um, whether or not you are considered pleasing or becoming to someone else. Mm. And can you talk a little bit about that? Because that chapter was just so like how you describe that interaction and describe just walking up to people and asking them, you know, yeah. um, it was just a searing moment to think about how many other young black girls are navigating the same exact thing. Mm. Yeah. So the title of the chapter is unpretty. And then the sub was that not the subtitles unpretty then in parentheses, I want to dance with somebody. Mm -hmm. So this is answering the question, but a motif of my book is that it's kind of written sort of like a play. Like it isn't, it's not like there's not dialogue like a play, but just that's how the, the, the theme or the motif that I sort of use. And so originally I actually had um, song lyrics in the book, and I think Tyler, you might yep, have seen early yep. early versions of the manuscript. Well, I found out that if you're going to include song lyrics in a book, you actually have to get rights. You have to, buy, so it's like it's not you just so can't. Wild. It's wild. You actually have to get the Dang. rights for the song. I need to get in the songwriting. So I ain't gonna lie to you. Okay? It's, it's <laughs> not regular regular quotes too. You're right. right. Like so, yes. so you can't use it like a re- like you can't use it like a regular quote and then just cite it. Like you like you have to get the rights to use it. And so, unpretty is a reference to the TLC. TLC song and I and I referenced them um, in the body of the chapter and then I want to dance with somebody Whitney Houston I mean just literally so the chapter is literally about me being a middle school girl my first Mm. I go through my first dance that I'm going through in middle school super it's very it's a very 90s elder millennial chapter I feel like that there are lots of kind of references um, that if you that if you were a girl or maybe a white girl I'm not really sure um, in that (laughs) in that if you if you had if if you did not have access to BET and only got MTV um, because because the cable was racist um, then (laughs) so some of the race so so some of the references and stuff there are very are very late 90s I'll say I'll say that and so it's about the chapters about me at my first middle school dance and I just wanted to dance with somebody, anybody. And I'm going around trying to 
find someone to dance with and I keep getting rejected and it keeps going on and on the whole night. And then that was essentially middle school for me was being rejected at dances. And it was a little bit of high school too, until I started going out with the person who would eventually, I would eventually marry, but that's a whole other different story. But anyway, so I use that as a, as a um, point of departure to talk about beauty standards and how, um, Black women, we, anybody who, I'll put it this way, anyone who isn't white, straight, hmm. cisgender, like that, that whole thing, able-bodied, um, thin, though anybody who isn't that, our bodies are seen as nothing. Hmm. We're, we're, we're non, we're non-being, we're nothing. So we don't exist until Becky so-and-so decides that she likes our big butt. And so she's going to get a BBL mm. and then all this, all of a sudden now, oh, wow, having big butts. I, I grew up in the early 2000s. I grew up in, in the late 90s, 90s, early 2000s. There was this thing called heroin chic where everyone um, and, I, and I was not I was thin, not because I was thin, because I had an eating disorder. I was actually I don't look at now, but I was very, very, very thin. And I fit the beauty standard kind of in that way for being for being very, very, very thin. But I remember whenever white girls used to be be upset because they had and I quote big old ghetto booties they'd be like oh I have I have a, oh I have a big old ghetto booty and they didn't the white girls back in my day didn't mm. want to have big butts mm. now you now everybody's at the gym doing squats they they doing they they you know tune <laughs> they little they little chicken cutlets and stuff in front, of, in front of the Instagram and everything else but back in my day nobody nobody wanted that but because white women Kim Kardashian decided mm. that they wanted that as a beauty standard they wanted that to be their beauty they co-opted they stole from us the beauty that they told us that we couldn't have Oof. and so that is really like the the essence and the sum of of the black of the of the white beauty standard really failing black women mm -hmm. and not saying that we want that and that we want to aspire to that and so for me you know i I was not, there's not a day in my life that I wish that I was white. I knew that my black was beautiful, but I wanted to be seen as beautiful mm -hmm. as who I was. For me, it wasn't, it, I couldn't conceive of, I read, I read the bluest eye when I was 15. And up until that point, I, it, it never even occurred to me that someone would, that is black would want to not be black that never occurred to me and then whenever i read that i know it's a work of fiction but it, i feel like it does like tell a pretty true now as i as i can see in in life growing up but that does tell a pretty true story um for some people but like i never wanted I never wanted to be white. I just wanted for people to see my beauty for what it was. I wasn't going, my hair wasn't going to do, no matter how much relaxer I put in my hair, my hair was never going to do the stuff that the girl's hair was doing on the cover of Seventeen magazine. My my hair was too nappy. My lips were too thick. Like my skin was too dark. I couldn't take the makeup tips that they had and the thing, mm. the stuff that they had, you know, on MTV that, cause I mean, I watched a lot of MTV cause that was like the only window to like, the the popular world in in rural Missouri and I just I realized that I was never going to be that and have that but I wanted to be seen for mm -hmm. who I was 
Wow. <laughs> Jeez, I feel that. That I was that wow. We got a Selah, and let's take a break, and then let's come back in, and we'll let Jamar ask some more questions. <laughs> As we're talking about Ali Henny um, and her book, I Won't Shut Up. Hey, folks, this is Dr. Jamar Tisby. It has been so much fun recording past the mic for 10 years. Can you believe it? And we're still going strong. That's because of you. If you are not already a Patreon supporter, I'm inviting you to help us continue this podcast for as little as $1 an episode. Just go to patreon.com slash pass the mic. That's patreon.com slash pass the mic and help us continue this journey with you. So, Ali, we're talking about your book, I Won't Shut Up. I'm intrigued by titles. You said it had a different name before. And then in your structure of it, you talk about it being sort of like a play. So you begin it with an overture called Confession of a Loud Black Woman. And I'm thinking about voice and volume here Mm -hmm. and why you chose to sort of frame your story around those aspects. Yeah. So originally, and Tyler reminded me of this recently because I had completely forgotten it. Um, but originally I was going to title this book diary of a loud black woman. Mm. And so that, that came from, um, that's what, a fire title, what, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> it is somebody that, that, that. That, that will probably don't take it. Cause it's probably going to be the title <laughs> of my next book. So please don't, okay, don't take it. Don't, don't take it. Nobody. Um, cause it's, I'm going to use it. But anyway, um, that was the original title. And that came from the overture, like, and I think it's a, it's something like confessions of a, of a loud black woman, something something along those lines. Um, just as I was reflecting on my own story, I and because I knew that I wanted to write, I knew that I wanted to write about different things that had happened in my life. And as I was thinking on these things, I noticed that there was a theme of being silenced. There was a, there was a theme of feeling like I couldn't express myself. I feel like that even, and I get into this a little bit um, in some of the earlier chapters that even with some of my my grandma's illness, with just you know being being the youngest girl in a, in a large extended family and stuff, I was the youngest girl for a long for a long time before um, my niece and and other younger cousins and stuff came along. Where there's this aspect of like not really being taken seriously, and so like I have a sister that's twelve years older um, than I am, so it's like you know always always being the baby. No one really like taking you seriously, people kind of laughing and not being mean or weird about it, but just like, oh, she said something. She's precocious. She's young. She's really smart. Ha ha ha. And it's like, no, I'm being serious. Take me seriously. And then during my grandma's illness, there were being times where it's like, no, I want you to understand. Like, you know, grandma's grandma's grumpy. She's upset. She's she's sick. She's whatever. This thing happened is getting blown way out of proportion and really wanting to be heard. Um, that was I, I realized that there was like a, a wound or whatever there. Um that 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 formed me and i you know care about injustice and one of the things that i care about is people people having a voice people being able to name their experiences and being able to talk back to their oppression being able to talk hmm. back to the people who are oppressing them and that really comes from just my my own experiences of having times when when I couldn't talk back, mm. when, you know, when the pastor of a church gets upset at me because I disagreed with something that he that he said and couldn't and, and couldn't 
express myself back without being without being berated mm. um for that and so I, I just as i was reflecting on some of my life experiences i realized that, that 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 was the theme and so i went with i won't shut up because that because it's like oh well no like like this is trying to this is like like it kind of was it kind of morphed from from finding my voice you know com- like to all these different things and then i was just like okay i won't shut up that's what the that's what the title needs yeah. to be so I love the fact that you reference what I think for many of us is just our reality. These election inflection points that you reference that are really signs and symbols of a changing world and also a revelation of where white supremacy reveals itself. Mm. And so Nancy said Barack Obama is the Antichrist. <laughs> oh. <laughs> like, I want to talk about this because I think for all of us, we had that moment at some point in time, whether we were... For President Obama or then Senator Obama or not, we had this revelation moment, whether you were for him from the start when you first saw him, you eventually, you know, were a supporter, eventually saw the importance of it. This overt, unprompted, (laughs) this unprompted racism. Mm -hmm. Well, I think he's the Antichrist. Yeah. Like, talk about that interaction and how much that shows just the level of disconnection that people have especially with our lived experience Mm -hmm. and with what is a moment of inspiration and a moment of accomplishment for us vicariously from this seeing this black man and uh, maybe even more importantly this black family (laughs) rise to power yeah you know i think that the president that the election of president obama for a lot of black millennials that's like a coming of age thing for us everyone who everyone who was 18 or over in 2008 that was that was black like that was just a a huge 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 moment for us and so in this chapter in the book i talk about what that moment meant to me what it was like the interactions that i had with my mom just the the way that i was processing this this victory with different things that had already happened in my life, et cetera, et cetera. And then I roll into work at my first big girl job and sit down and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, yes, this is going to be great. People, I mean, it's at a white church, which was my first mistake for thinking that anybody, <laughs> that anybody was going to, was going to be congratulatory or whatever. Like I, like I, that was my first mistake, but I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, are we like, you know, cause you know, they're on you know the news. Oh, this is a post-racial America, blah, 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 blah. So I'm thinking, oh my goodness, like this I'm I, you know, I'm crying you know I'm I'm doing my hair in the morning getting getting ready for work and I'm crying and whatever and I roll into work and I'm thinking, you know, people are going to be regard. I mean, I knew that they voted for John McCain, but I'm thinking like they're going to be excited about this because this is historic. And the woman that I shared an office with, I sit down, she's just kind of, you know, plug, plug, plucking away on her computer. And so then we have this conversation. And in the course of the conversation, she's basically just like, yeah, well, I think Barack Obama is the Antichrist. And it's like. That escalated what? quickly. <laughs> it's like, like it's, very matter. And you said even in the book, I believe, that she said matter of factly. It was just she said it. It it was so matter of fact. She said it like I, I describe it like she said it like she was sharing like this like a juicy secret. It would it would have been like you know if I was like you know yeah you know I you know I heard that Jamar Tisby blah 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 blah. <laughs> right. I mean it was like it's like she shared it like that, yeah. and it was so and. And it was just, you're saying that this dude is like a person who is 
from the Bible. Like, so it's not even just like, oh, you know, yeah, it wasn't like, oh, I, you know, I heard that he was a Muslim or not that, that not that that's, I mean, that's wrong, that not Muslim is not a slur. But if she had right. said that, I would have been like, I think you're wrong, but, but that's not outlandish yeah. or, you know, well, like, you know, well, I, I think that he's, that I don't like him or something like that. It, it would have been shocking in that moment, but it wouldn't have been as weird as, you know, I'm sitting at work in this church and you literally are calling somebody the antichrist. And like my only response to it was sort of like, um, I, I think that there's a lot of things that have to happen before the antichrist <laughs> appear. Like, like I'm trying to be, like, I'm trying to be theological. Because I'm really like, because I, because she was so convinced, and I was just like, your theology isn't even like really good here. But right. like, but she was, but she was just loud and wrong, and was convinced by it, and just, and so in the chapter, because there's, there's more to it than that. But yes. I, but I go into um, some of my, some of my feelings, and some of just how how all of that was just, it was, a, it was a real, it was a weird and surreal kind of moment. Yeah. It, it- you know, you have so many of these interactions in white churches. <laughs> and it was tough to read sometimes. One of them, you know, in the chapter, diverse don't mean free, mm. is you talk about, which is a word in and of itself. You talk about going back to a church where you had previously been a part of and interacted with and the pastor boasting about being multicultural and multi-ethnic. Mm-hmm. And you've been acknowledged in that moment. No, it's it's hard to do that in, in a city like this. Mm-hmm. And he goes on to say, you know, I just want to be able to know. I just want to know that I can tell you if you're if you're doing too much. And he said specifically, you know how you are. Yeah. And then you said, well, what do you mean by that? Well, you, you know, you, you know how you can get you're an activist now. And I remember reading, and that was so, it was so, how you wrote it was so poignant because I feel like we could have put so many names in your position. I feel like it was so, and I've heard this so much, the, uh, we've worked really hard to maintain an old, a, a, a culture of unity and an atmosphere mm-hmm. of unity. Mm-hmm. And I just want to be able to tell you, you're doing too much. And it's like, you haven't really made the progress you think you've made, have you? And there are so many stories we could pull from the book of your interactions with white churches. That one really resonated with me. And it was so relatable to the experiences I've been in because at the root and the heart of it is control. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they want to control even the expression of diversity within our space. Mm-hmm. And even how he, um, there's, there's, there's a portion of it where he talks about how, well, we had, uh, Trump, uh, people wearing Trump shirts and Biden shirts and Sanders shirts. And I don't know if he had a Southern accent. I'm sorry. <laughs> but Trump shirts and Biden shirts and Hillary and, and Hillary shirts. Yes. 2016. Yeah. So like, yeah. So Hillary shirts and Sanders shirts. And it's like, like that even in and of itself is a red flag, right? <laughs> like, you know, and, and I just want you to talk about that concept. Diverse doesn't mean free. Diverse, or in your case, diverse don't mean free because that's something that we're constantly wrestling with at Pastor Mike and we're constantly considering. You know, the root of that story and that, and that story 
the interaction that I won't call it verbatim because I didn't have a tape recorder. I didn't write it down, but that, but that was how that interaction was. There wasn't, there wasn't anything about that interaction that was, that was at all like embroidered or embellished. That's how it was. I think I might've even been a little bit more gracious, um, in, in conveying what was, what was said, um, than had actually happened. So I wanted, I wanted to say that because it points to then you have, have this juxtaposition of a person of, of an institution that's saying look at how diverse we are look at all these things look at our accomplishments we're we're able to be the most diverse church in our city blockity blockity blah and then you have somebody who wants to make sure that if you're going to come in here as a black person that you're not going to rock the boat so they so the inherent that i'm going to do something to upset your unity because because i'm an activist and i would i use that term to self describe back then i would say i would use advocate now but of course you know i, I was new young whatever didn't have didn't have all the words but you but but it's like that word was really like oh my goodness you know well I don't know if he thought that I was just going to be like walking through the church with an anti-racism whistle. And anytime somebody <laughs> did something wrong, I'm like, you know, blow the whistle and be like, microaggression, microaggression. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know like what he envisioned that I would possibly do. And this is, mind you, a church that I had actually yes. had served in yes. before. So I wasn't coming just off the street. I wasn't, I wasn't just somebody off the street. This is, this is a church that I had actually served given, given significant years of my, of my youth too, mm. um, had been with the church through, through some really difficult times. And, and so there's an aspect of it that was kind of, that was kind of like, why would I have do, why would I do anything to harm this institution that I, that I sat here and, and helped and helped build. And I, and I had moved and, and had moved away and then had moved back um, to the city that I was in. And there's this whole idea though, that whenever I say diverse don't mean free is again, there was this pride in the, we've got all these different skin colors here. We've got all these different types of people here. But I didn't feel I didn't feel free. I didn't feel I could not bring the full measure and the full authenticity of myself into that space. So I could. So they wanted my diversity. They wanted my black body, my black skin. But then they didn't want everything that came with that. Mm -hmm. They didn't want the social justice talk. They didn't want the 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 um, Facebook posts that were that were controversial and then some eventually you know that would end up that it would end up going viral. They didn't they didn't want that. They just wanted me to be the image to be part of this image that they had of being a diverse church in the city and that is a chain that locks mm. that locks you up whenever whenever you can't be who you fully are and show up as your full authentic self in a space you're not you're not free if you have to adjust yourself if you have to if you have to tone it down or rein it in or whatever and again like i think that there's an aspect of to be like, you know, an ethical, whatever type person. I mean, you can't just, you can't let it all hang out, right? Like there's, <laughs> there's going to be times, there are going to be times whenever we have to recognize yeah. that some people are going to be at different, at different places in their journey. They're going to be at different places in life. There might be different things that they're, that they're able to hear and able to receive or whatever, but to just kind of make it sort of like you're too much. And because or, or you can be too much. And I want to make sure that you're not too much I because sure. <laughs> I, I, I want to make sure that you're not too much because and then the, I don't remember if you said this, but the whole thing was 
because we have because because I've worked so hard. Mm-hmm. We've worked so hard to build yes. something here. And so it was as if I could have somehow like destroyed whatever it was. And it's and so I realized it's like, okay, if, if I could come in just and this was before I had any type of social media platform, any type of like whatever. Nobody nobody knew nobody knew me from from anybody on the street. I, I didn't have any type of platform or following back then. But it's like if I can dismantle what you did simply by existing in your space and is that mm. then it's a house of cards to be mm. to begin with and maybe it's not maybe it's built on shifting sand maybe it needs to be taken down and and destroyed but that's a whole other different conversation yeah this is there's so much so that much. we could bring out and and I do want to say for everyone who is listening or watching again you have to get a ticket to join justice um, conference 2023, June 23rd and 24th, riseupandflourish.com, uh, because we are doing the official book launch of Ali's book. And we're going to spend a lot of time there just talking about it. You have an opportunity to purchase it in, in person. We're probably going to have some sort of signing where she'll Definitely. sign it and take pictures and things of that nature. But um, I just want to close with this that you said at one point, I believe it's in the chapter right before the Barack Obama chapter about faking the funk. You said um, that there's a way in when we fake in those predominantly white spaces that we allow them to steal us from us. Mm -hmm. And as I was that that resonated with me as I read the book, that theft was such a key part of white supremacy and racism and don't let them steal us from us. Mm-hmm. Don't let them steal us from us. And I feel like, just as a parting statement, I feel like this book reminded me so deeply and uh, so clearly that I have to protect who God has made me to be. And I know this was written for black women, but I I was challenged to not allow anyone to steal me from me. And so I, I say thank you. For that, I think that people who read this book will feel the black people who read this book will feel the the necessary authenticity, the necessary clinging to themselves, and also the refusal to be silent mm-hmm. and the refusal to quiet themselves even when the world says that they should. So, thank you, thank you for not just being a part of this organization, but for writing this book, yeah. this labor of love, and for giving it to us. And there's so there's so many more things I want to talk about. So many more major incidents within the book that <laughs> it's just so much in there. Every every chapter, I was like, oh man, we should talk about this. We should talk about this. We should talk about this. But I we want you, people to buy the book. You yeah, gotta you buy. Know. You have to buy the book. So just remind people where they need to go to buy the book because I just want to say this officially so you can hear where you need to go to pick up the book. So anywhere that you can get books, you can get my book. And if they don't have it, of course you can order it. Um, black owned bookstores, your local black owned bookstore, order it from there. You can order it off of Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, Bookshop, a lot of different places. There's also going to be an audiobook. I know a lot of people love yes. audiobooks. There's going to be an audiobook. I'm narrating the yes. audiobook. And so that is going to be the that that was an adventure. Uh that was <laughs> that, that was a, that was an adventure in and of itself. Um but yeah, so you can get it wherever you get books. Ali Henny, thank you so much. Congratulations you, again. Sister. And I believe this is going to be a, a book that lasts and encourages so many. Well thank you. Thank you for having me on. <laughs>